I am here with Coach Steve Morris. Steve, thanks for joining me. Very happy to be here. Awesome. So for our listeners, Steve is the author of a new best-selling book, What Size Balls Do I Need? Inside the Dizzying World of Youth Sports. And you're also somewhat of an icon in the Los Angeles coach camping world. So for our listeners, I worked at Coast Sports as a camp counselor for four consecutive summers. And it really has had a tremendous impact on so many kids in the LA area. So other than being a former kid yourself, you have some experience with today's topic, which is the future of being a kid. So I think a good place to start is, you know, there's so much that is universal about being a kid, but also a lot has changed since COVID-19 has happened. So I'd love to get a sense from you of what has changed from a kid's perspective since COVID-19 began. Kids have always wanted to just run and do and, and act on their impulses. And at the same time, they've kind of had this addictive attraction to technology. <laughs> and so in the, the past couple of years, and, and this having been exacerbated during COVID, um, you know, their, their grasp of technology has become even more aggressive. I mean, they've had to rely on it, and now it's with parent approval. Previously, you know, parents kind of uh, tried to have uh, a bit of control over what their kids would do, or they would, you know, moderate the use of technology because it is not only it's, is it pervasive, it's just so attractive. Right. Um, but with COVID, with kids having to use it and having to be on their screens for school, parents have kind of relaxed their own sort of, you know, restrictions and kind of let the kids go. And I think I've seen over the past few months, especially having done virtual camp um, for the past eight weeks, um, parents just, they're, they're not monitoring as it as much. And so kids are just going pretty wild. You know, they'll stay on there. They'll, they'll do their school and then they'll play six hours of Fortnite. So I think the, you know, the technology itself is changing the nature of what it means to be a kid. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, they literally banned cell phones. So you couldn't, if they caught you checking your phone in between classes, you would get sent to detention. Whereas, and then just a couple years later, so you were the class of 2010, Griffey in the class of 2017, cell phones were permitted in the classroom. That's amazing. So I Yeah, and now just, kids are taking their classes online. It's like a full turnaround. And it's only going to get worse. Um, yeah, I mean, because now that we, we we have no sort of plan for beating back the disease and we are going online for school increasingly across the country, the kids will be on their screens. And I learned from some of the kids this summer some of their tricks. They basically <laughs> will turn off their cameras. So even during class, they told me they would turn off their cameras and then be playing games on another device. <laughs> and they would tell their teachers they'd gone to the restroom or or whatever they you know they had to go somewhere else and the teachers were so burdened by having to look at 30 screens that a couple of kids offline at any given time you know didn't really concern them so yeah. you know kids who are adept at getting away with whatever they can get away with are going to increasingly use the the technology to do what they want totally yeah gaming the system and well, how do you think about the pros and cons of this? Because I could see on the one hand, you become a digital native if you grow up with tech and you really understand 
how, like you said, like how to game the system, how to work all the ins and outs of tech. And that may make you a more successful person in our increasingly digital world, especially in the workforce. On the other hand, maybe overuse of technology creates some social issues. Maybe you start to compare yourselves to beautiful, rich and famous celebrities. So how do you weigh the pros and cons of, of you know, having lots of screen time and lots of digital activity? Well, I think this goes all the way back to the beginning of the conflict between, um, you know, humanity and technology. You know, this this one really starts back in the Industrial Revolution, and it's only increased in velocity, you know, year after year, where the the lead time now between technological advances is shorter and shorter and shorter. And so I think that, you know, Kids, as you say, are, are digital natives. They can just pick this stuff up. They can look at any new piece of technology and instantly understand it. It's like they organically understand what they're looking at and then how to you know, use it, manipulate it, and exploit it. Um, I think that another force in society, the social media world, um, you know, comes at them a different way. It, it further mm -hmm. envelops them and, and draws them even deeper in. And as you, as you said, I think there are going to be resultant social issues. You know, you have the, 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 the comic cliche of four kids sitting on a couch next to each other, all on their phones, all texting each other <laughs> instead of talking to each other. Right. I think, you know, the technology has changed that. I think it's changed uh, the dating world. Um, you know, everything is texting. Nobody talks on the phone anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, kids will become increasingly dependent on, on screens or as we go into the next 10 years, not screens, there'll be, I guess, like light sources in the room that, you know, you've seen in various movies, but all this stuff is going to become reality fairly soon. Yeah. Um, and so their experiences are becoming more and more insular and you could see it in their posture. I mean, there mm. is a, a cell phone posture now where kids are kind of hunched over. They're going to definitely have orthopedic issues in the future. Um, but it's really part of... That's why we need smart becoming, glasses. <laughs> yeah, well, they're going to be contact lenses. They're right. going to be contact lenses that basically have everything on them. We won't really even need screens. Yeah, or brain-machine um, interface. You just go right to the source like Elon Musk's Neuralink. Yeah. You know, but that's all going to be reality in a very short time. Right. Um, and I think the kids are, are both, you know, this stuff is for the kids, um, targeted at the kids. And, you know, it conflicts with their their just innate humanity um, and sort of, you know, beats back the, you know, the ways we would interface with the world before there was even the word interface. You know, right. the way we just related to people eye to eye, you're now it's relating to people eye to screen. Yeah, I don't even really know my own opinion on it because I can see that from one perspective, maybe we're just being nostalgic about the monkey days where you would go, you know, run around and and, you know, hang out in a very physical way. And then on the other hand, maybe it's that going towards a world where you can communicate instantly through just thinking a thought and sharing it with one another, like maybe that is the future and fighting it is, is uh, you know, not something that's even worthwhile because it's become an inevitability. But I guess like taking all that into consideration, if you're a parent of a kid today, you know, your kids are a little bit older now, but let's say you have a really young kid, what age would you say it's okay for them to start having unregulated screen time? 
And then what age would you think it's okay for them to have their own social media accounts? Um, obviously there's the caveat. It's different for every kid and every family. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when, when my kids were little, when Evan was little, we didn't have any gaming systems. No, I, what was it in those days? When you, what was your first gaming system? I mean, I Nintendo had the Nintendo 64. 64 was the, <laughs> it seems so, like so old school 64. now. Or PlayStation. I mean, you know, all of them that are all antiques now. Um, and that was at six. And, you know, we still tried to regulate it. And now this was also 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of kids, um, parents are getting them, getting them technology to babysit, you know, sort of like what we did for Evan. So I, I see six year olds with cell phones. I think that's young. Right. I think, you know, there be a sense of responsibility outside of the self and understanding that this is, you know, um, in some level, a privilege to have. So I don't know, maybe 10 or 11. You know, it used to be kids would get cell phones when they graduated from elementary school and moved into middle school so that the parents could ostensibly track them if they needed them. Right. Or they Um, get a ride home and they're, yeah, so it's a little bit more freedom. Right. So it was freedom and security and safety at the same time. Um, I still think it's a fairly decent age, which is now, you know, fifth or sixth grade to kind of have your own system, um, your own phone. But to have a a social media account, I know parents are really trying to hold off till kids get into ninth or tenth grade. Right. Um, And do you think that's do you think that's different for boys and girls? Because there's obviously sort of a different risk level if you have a boy or a girl? Well, I think parents have always looked at, at, you know, girls more protectively, whether, you know, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. Um, boys, it's, on some level, don't care as much about it, except for the gaming sense. They right. don't really care. So maybe addiction degree. is more of like an issue with some kids. Yeah. Oh, it's obviously an issue, an right. issue more with kids than others. Um, and that's a whole chemical and genetic and, you know, a uh, whole lot of other uh, factors that are exacerbated by the technology. Yeah. Um, and so I was going to say, there's this other useful metaphor that I think about a lot, which is that your phone is essentially a, a digital extension of your brain. So we are already cyborgs to some extent. Like I offload a lot of the things that you used to have to remember, like birthdays and what do I like my calendar my work schedule all of these things I no longer have to remember it I offload all of that to my iPhone and really to the cloud Um, so there's obviously the benefit of that where you can be so much more than one monkey brain used to be now you can be this whole you know plugged into the cybernetic collective but on the other hand you're now dependent on that digital brain and so it's it's also like balancing how dependent do you want to be on it Versus how much do you want to benefit from all of the achievements you can unlock with that digital part of your brain? Well, when is the last time you saw somebody walking around without the phone in their hand? In every picture yeah. you see, there's a phone in somebody's hand. So it is. it has become an appendage. Mm-hmm. It really is now part of one's body. And I think like anything else, it depends what you want to do with it. If it's just going to be your source of entertainment or information, then that's, you know, that's one thing. If you're going to use it to expand yourself and use it for, for research and other sorts of tools, then, you know, then you do have a, you know, a, a computer right at your fingertips, Yeah. Um, which is fascinating 
you know, compared to the old flip phones or Blackberries. We now are walking around with computers in our hands. Yeah. Yeah. Managing your attention is the hardest thing now because that's really the scarcest resource of all. Like we have so much overflowing with information and entertainment and all these ways you could spend your time. And a lot of them have been designed to be as engaging as possible, even specifically for kids. So being able to manage your attention. And I think there was one research study where they found that kids that were able to delay gratification, where if you put them in a room and you said, here's a cookie, freshly baked chocolate chip cookie. If you... You can eat it right now or you can wait five minutes and we'll come back with a second cookie. And the kids that were able to wait ended up being far more successful in pretty much every aspect of life going forward. Except I think the nature of being a kid is a, a kid will say, I'm eating that cookie now and I know my parents are going to give me another one in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it would have to maybe be the experiential, uh, you know, uh, just sort of result that, well, you're not getting that cooking in the second one in five minutes, that maybe the next time they'll delay gratification. But it's really <laughs> difficult because childhood is not about delayed gratification. I think it's built in right. that parents are meeting kids' needs in the moment. So, you know, I think cell phones and computers just make it even more, you know, acute that um, kids are instant gratification, you know, machines. They yeah. need it now. They, they can't wait. They, it's not really, I think, baked into their psychology about patience. There is mm -hmm. no patience up to a certain age. Um, you know, it's all about me, 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 me. And parents feed into that. They feed it and feed into it. So it's difficult for kids to, you know, so I think those are the outliers, the ones who maybe can show some delayed gratification. Right. Um, or else are products of better parenting. But um, I think that's, you know, the exception rather than the rule. I think most kids seeing that cookie would just take that cookie. Yeah. They have no concept of time. So you're telling them, wait five minutes and you're going to get another cookie. Five minutes is an eternity for a kid. Right. When you grow up watching TikToks, so. can you imagine like getting a kid to watch Citizen Kane or some, some like movie like that or, or read a full well, they're, book they're, rather than just read some tweets? <laughs> it doesn't happen. And I... I I think that all changed back in the early 80s with the advent of MTV and personal mm. computing and other technology like faxes, all coming at the same time where the world instantly sped up. Um, we sacrificed depth for, for speed and, and gloss. And um, so the attention spans of, of you know succeeding generations just got shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, I know that when we're watching a movie at home that, you know, Griffey is watching is sitting on his phone, right? You know, he's on his yeah, phone. One screen's his not phone, enough. The, music, the music's <laughs> playing or the, the, the narrative is playing, but he's missing all of the visual nuance. He's missing anything that, or, you know, is happening in the movie. He can hear it. So he yeah. thinks he's seeing the movie, but he's not processing the movie because the screen is more compelling in front of him. Totally. Or it's, it's like the analogy of taking a family vacation and you're driving through Monument Valley, Utah, which is one of the most fantastic vistas in the Western United States. And, you know, anybody that's seen any Westerns or John Ford movies knows Monument Valley by heart. And the kid is sitting in the back seat and the parent is driving, ooing and on, going, isn't this gorgeous? And, you know, the kid is just staring at his phone. Yeah. You barely look up for a second. If it's not on his phone, he won't see it. If you can somehow stream the, uh, 
you know, the car camera into his phone and he can see Monument Valley as he's driving through it while he's on his phone, then he'll see it. Otherwise, right. no interest. Yeah. Now, there's this other interesting phenomena I've noticed, which is that it used to be like when I was growing up, you pretty much just had to believe that what your parents were saying was true. You had no way of fact checking them. Like, it's not like you're going to pull out the Encyclopedia Britannica and thumb through it and find something. Right. But nowadays, you can literally fact check your parents and your teachers in real time. And so I wonder if this is going to if this is going to lead to like sort of a know it all mentality where maybe they think they know more than they really do, or maybe it's a good thing and it'll actually allow for us all to agree on a set of facts. So I'm curious if you've noticed that or thought about that phenomena at all. Well, I've seen it again, you know, sorry, Griffey, you're, you're right in this, <laughs> but Griffey has started quoting Twitter as his news source. <laughs> And so we'll say something and we'll have referenced, um, you know, either one of the, the major newspapers or, or sort of, you know, traditional media sources. And Griffey will go to Twitter and say, no, that's not what they're saying here. <laughs> and so I think that, yes, there's a, a know-it-all-ism that's possible. But again, you know, when, when teachers wouldn't let you use um, online sources for your papers, Right. Because you don't really know the validity of the source. There's a bias that's baked into anything that's, you know, on the Internet. You know, even even going back to the old encyclopedias, there were definitely there was a bias as as scrubbed as it could be out. But, you know, whoever's writing that is putting a little bias in there. That's, right. You know, so it just depends really how how overt you know, the bias or the, the legitimacy of the information is. Um, and that's tough to filter out, and it's tougher to filter out for kids who are, you know, so impressionable and have less experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big change that it used to be biased, but it was kind of a biased set of facts that everyone agreed on, whereas now it's like a post-truth world where we recognize that everything is biased, so you really have to figure out your own beliefs by taking information from all different types of bias sources. And that seems like a and big I don't change. Think, yeah, and I don't think kids have the tools for that. You know, I think they, they will gravitate to the shiniest, glossiest, brightest, loudest um, thing that they see, and that might be their source. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult because, you know, you can't have a lot of experience at eight or, at eight or 10 or 12. You yeah. know, it takes a lot of years, you know, the word experience, basically, you know, you need time to have experience. Totally. Um, so it's really tough. I think it's it's not a bad thing that kids want to reach and do research and and fact check on some level. But, you know, when it gets obnoxious, um, you know, it, it could be uh, a little much. But, you know, kids are also meant to be obnoxious. There is that <laughs> sort of basic kiddom that, um, you know, parents really try to, you know, kids are unsocialized beasts. They are savage beasts. And they like process. pushing buttons just to see what'll happen, I've noticed. <laughs> that's how they learn. It's right. like the little kid, the little kid sitting in the high chair and, um, you know, she, you know, their parents are feeding her and they're having a great time. And all of a sudden she gets this little gleam in her eye and then decides to, decides to push dinner onto the floor. Right. And the parents, you know, go, don't do that. Come on. And they pick it up and clean it up and put it back on the, 
you know, the high chair shelf and um, on the tray and then boom, pushes it again. Right. So, I mean, that's how kids learn limits is pushing buttons. Yeah, the yatsa hurrah, I think is the Yiddish yeah. term for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're trying to figure out the, the limits of their universe. Right. And, you know, by pushing buttons and, and pushing the envelope and how, you know, how far, how fast, how high can I go before I crash and, and get hurt is yeah. what a lot of them will So what is the best response then if, if that's what kids are naturally going to do? Like, let's say you have that, uh, you know, a, a girl and, and she's in her high chair and she keeps spilling over the food time after time. Like, what are you supposed to do? Do you just keep giving her more food or do you maybe let her go hungry one, one time so she realizes that's what happens? Um, what would your advice yeah, I, be? Yeah, no, look, and I'm no parenting paragon, but I think that I guess an enlightened parent would, you know, keep picking it up a couple of times and then just take it away and say, no, no, we don't do that. Right. Until, you know, the kid has has her tantrum and calms down and then you can try again. But I think it's, you know, it's a constant um, as, as the kid is experimenting. I think the parent is experimenting with, you know, his and her response as well. Right. It's like um, a battle of willpower almost. Not, yeah. It's a right. It's a battle of wills. It's a bad, it's, you know, it's a test and both sides get it wrong constantly. Yeah. Um, which is why we have a flourishing, you know, psychology uh, profession. Right. So, um, you know, it's, there's only so much yeah. you can do. And, you know, all the parenting handbooks that are out there that go unread, um, you can't win. So, you know, you can only try so hard. Right. Yeah, the, the image that came to my mind is in this, the book Musashi about the greatest Japanese samurai in history. He talks about how in swordsmanship, it's always a battle of the will. And so he would be standing completely still in the snow, eyeing his opponent with snow, you know, collecting on their on their hair and their nose and everything. And as soon as you would notice the other opponent flinch, you knew it was all over and you had won the battle. And I feel like it's, it might be kind right. of like that. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I don't really know, but awesome. So I'd love to talk about <laughs> sports now and the role of, of sports with, with upbringing and knowing your limits and learning and really what the role of sports is and why it's important for kids to go through organized sports and maybe some of the misconceptions that parents have going into it. So what advice would you give for both parents and kids who are just starting out in their organized sports career? I think that sports is a uh, um, sports are sports is um, a wonderful venue for exploring um, oneself, for exploring the, the 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 bounty of what a family can bring, and for learning values, for learning self-esteem, for learning teamwork for actually growing into who you want to be in the, you know, in the adult world. I think parents, parents just starting out often make the mistake of imputing their perspective onto the kids in how they're going to go through their sports career. So they see mm -hmm. them almost as little professionals. And the truth is that sports started out as a game. Sports are recreation. Sports are fun. And that's why kids gravitate to them. They, mm -hmm. they like kicking and throwing and running and jumping. It feels good. And that's what they want to do. They want to try more things that feel good. 
And what happens is they'll, the parents will get them into little kid classes and the kids will like them. And then when they get to five or six years old, they'll move them into um, the first stirrings of organizational leagues. And what I found after years and years and years of watching and watching my own kids is the second that we start imposing structure on the game and where kids are expected to develop and to get better. And mm. if they're good, if they're good, they have to become great. And if, they if they're great, they have to be the best. Um, from the second they have responsibility to their teammates where they have to show up, where if they're tired, they still have to go to a game or a practice. Um, where when sports starts to become a job and an obligation and starts to lose its innocence and purity and kids will start pushing back. And this is when you see kids start burning out and wanting to leave teams and leagues. So I think parents need to, as, as kids get older and go through these various steps, they need to make sure that whatever program the kids are in, the kids are still having fun. That it's yeah. not just about getting better, getting on a better team, getting the next step, doing this so that you'll be able to get into high school or the parents who are pushing six-year-olds for their future college scholarships. It's, that's missing the point. Right. The point is to try and, and keep it as fun as long as possible because that's when kids will want to keep doing it. And sports can, can go on through their life. It doesn't have to end at high school or college. A couple of years ago, I started an adult league for women. I started just mom's soccer classes because this generation of moms, most of them hadn't played organizational, organized sports. Um, they had watched their kids go through it. They didn't really have an understanding of what their kids were doing or how hard their kids were working. Um, but just getting them out onto the field and, and playing and running and these then 40-year-old women who were 60-year-old women, are all, all, many of them are still playing and playing in leagues. That's so great. sports can be a lifelong pursuit. We try, we, you know, the, the goal for parents is not to burn their kids out when they're 12. Right. And I've noticed that same sort of thing where if there's a little kid who's maybe doing like a goofy dance, as soon as the parent comes over with the cell phone is like, oh, do that goofy dance for me. Then the kid is like, oh, I'm over it. So yeah, it's, it's, there's a spontaneity that you kind of can't recreate. Yeah. And, you know, you'll see kids, kids will be on the field, they'll do something, and then they kind of have like this spasm of, of you know, craziness. Whereas you said, they'll just do a crazy dance. They'll kick a ball. Nobody's looking at them. They do this little celebratory dance, this little celebration, and then they go back to, you know, focusing on the game. There's mm -hmm. those little moments where you can't explain them, but it's just kind of like the, the essence of kids spilling out. Right. Um, and you can't control it. You don't want to control it. You know, parents might want to manipulate it or get it on film because it's funny. Show it to the grandparents. Um, yeah. But, you know, ki kids operate in a different time zone. It's like when, you know, if a team loses a game and the parents are just bummed out and the kids are bummed out and the coach will, you know, really hang on to it. But the kids will let go of it by the time they get to the restaurant and have their French fries. They're done. Right. You know, right. the 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 half life for misery with a kid is really short. Yeah. So oftentimes the know, losses are harder on the parents than the kids. <laughs> more more than oftentimes. Yeah. You know, and I think so that feeds in again to the parents. Parents project their expectations onto the kids. Yeah. And that's when it starts to get ruined for the kids. Totally. Now, you also talk about the 10-year window in your book. 
where, you know, this is essentially from the time where a kid first starts playing organized sports until their last game of high school. And it occurred to me when I was reading your book that originally sports were preparation for battle, especially lacrosse. Like that was like your mock warfare that would prepare you so that when the real thing came, you could work as a team, you could play your hardest, you knew what to do. And I wonder if there's some sort of parallel with the real world where if you've played on team sports and you've had that, you've, you've spent those 10 years well, then maybe you're more prepared to be on whether it's a team at a company or a nonprofit organization or anything, or even a marriage maybe. Um, so do you think there are some parallels there, even though we're obviously not sending our kids into battle like we used to? Oh, absolutely. I think in my own life, my years in sports and camp totally um, informed my outlook on life and how I related to people and how I, I wanted to be with people in different organizations. And the, the teamwork, the cooperation, the, you know, striving for the same goal, the attacking problems collectively. It's how I've actually moved through my entire life and all the, the way I had my college relationships. And then when I worked in television production and when I started my own camp um, and the way I used to coach my teams, it becomes like this collective, um, you know, it, it's another version of the family unit. That's what a team is. And if you can take those lessons and those those, you know, the 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 force, the the power that you get, you know, it's a multi it's a force multiplier being on a team. And I know a lot of the kids that have been through my programs now when they're they're questioned about what sports meant to them. They talk about how they learned about leadership, how they've, you know, learned about um, focus and and self and sacrifice for for a larger goal. And I see them now entering the business world and they're using all of these tools and they feel where they 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 feel way more prepared than if they hadn't played sports. They yeah. don't really have that frame of reference, but they're just feeling very prepared based on what they learned and what they took from from sports that, you know, the decade that they played on teams and with other people and, you know, sort of explored and developed themselves. Yeah, definitely. And and do you think there's a difference between team sports and solo sports? Because it, it does seem like what you get in something like soccer or basketball or football or lacrosse might be different than if you're on, say, like a swim team or tennis or, or golf. Tennis. There's some team aspect to it, but it's not quite the same where in the moment you're depending on your teammates. Would you suggest that you know, if parents maybe have like at least one or like team sport that their kid plays on, or do you think there's benefits to both? I think there are benefits to both, but I think, you know, they derive there. There are different benefits. Hmm. Um, I think individual sports will maybe, you know, teach you a greater self-reliance. You know, you really hmm. do have no one else to rely on but yourself. And so that might um, give you a, a stronger sense of self. Um, where you do get to, you know, shunt some of that off on your teammates, uh, you know, <laughs> on the field, there are more of you there. Um, but I think that sports in general, they, they teach you um, so many lessons, in, you know, including a, a, a sense of a, a will to, to, to be greater, a will to excel, um, a will to push yourself, to, to test your limits. I think, you know, that's common to, to individual and team sports. Um, I have a friend whose kid is a fencer, 
And, you know, there's nothing really more individual than being on that strip against, you know, it's mano a mano <laughs> with your Epe. And, um, but, the, you know, there's a team. He's part of the fencing team. And, you know, they try to cultivate the whole team thing within that. So every kid is yeah. standing on the edge of the strip rooting for his teammate, uh, you know, to win the match. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that will translate as well. I saw that on the, the swim teams at Brentwood when Dory uh, was on uh, the swim team. You know, everybody's standing there cheering at you in your lane as you're swimming. So, you know, you do get that teamwork thing. It's just a little differently expressed. Right. Awesome. Well, I have some rapid fire questions I want to ask you now, and then we'll get into the future scenarios. So are you ready? Okay. Sure. All right. Sure. The first one is about college. So right now there's the issue of a lot of colleges are going fully online, but they're paying full tuition or they're charging full tuition. Do you think it's worth it? Or what advice would you give to a kid who's considering what to do in the year 2020, 2021, uh, if it's full remote classes, but full tuition? Is it worth it? What should they do? I mean, that's a rough one. Um, and kids and parents are, are really wrestling hard with that right now. Um, I think if there's an, if school has gone online, but you're in the facility, you're in, you're on the campus, there's, there is at least, a, um, you know, the experience, however limited of, of being in the college setting, um, it could be worth it. Uh, you know, a lot of schools right now are doing uh, freshmen and sophomores are there one semester and juniors and seniors will be there the other semester. So they're trying to work with it. Look, you can see the college point of view. They can't go broke. They've got right, to somehow. Right. Um, but, you know, the parents are taking out loans. So I know a lot of kids. I know one kid whose school is is online and he and some friends are just renting a, a motorhome and they're going to go cross country and find uh, Wi-Fi wow, spots, do cool. their work and keep traveling. <laughs> um, you know, so I think you can be creative. And I think it also depends on what year of college you are. Um, if you're a, a senior um, and there's no pressing um, immediacy to get into the work world, you might want to take off or some kids might take off the year, do a gap year, maybe work, maybe intern somewhere to come back to have the on-campus senior year. I think on-campus for freshmen is also pretty important, pretty important because that's the, the whole beginning of the process. Yeah. Um, sophomores, I think, can go either way. You know, sophomores can, sophomores can, you know, do it or not. I think it's, there's no real answer. And I right. Think, it depends know, on the case. Representing that is the, you know, all of the news stories and all of the conflicts and all of the freaking out on every campus and every parent. I think it's it's ultimately an individual um, question in your household, what you want to do, what your kid wants to do. I know all the parents of, of freshmen are off taking their kids to Texas and Colorado and Michigan right now. And everybody's hoping for the best. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, here are some prediction questions. By what year... Will machines become as intelligent or more intelligent than humans? I think they're on their way. Um, I think by, <laughs> 2030, by 2030, I think we're going to see a greater reliance on um, machine learning and uh, AI. I think it's really, it, it's unstoppable. 
I think by 2050, you know, we'll totally be in Terminator territory. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but I think within the next within the next 10 years, it's really going to become, uh, you know, not only pervasive, but accepted. Yeah, I'm with you. Next question. Will sufficiently intelligent machines also be conscious or have consciousness? I think it's kind of like the calculus of approaching the limit of zero. You'll get really, 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 really close, almost to the point where you can't tell. But I think, I don't think they can become entirely conscious. You know, that's sci-fi stuff yeah. uh, of grafting, you know, grafting human brains into, into you know, machines um, or going the other way, doing the RoboCop thing where you just build the armor around the, you know, the, 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 the body itself. Um, I think they'll be really close and in some, you know, at some point almost indistinguishable. Um, but I don't think you get completely there. Like, you know, a, a machine having a soul. I don't know if you get there. I think, okay. you, you know, the, the, the replication of emotions we'll see. Here's another prediction question. What will the average lifespan be of a kid born today in the year 2020? Well, I, one of my old college roommates predicted that we are almost at the, the age of, of the end of disease. Mm. Um, that we will soon, because of uh, genetic techniques and advances in medicine, um, that we will be able to slow down aging. There's a there's a whole um, school out there. There's research being done up in the Bay Area, and there are even medications now mm -hmm. where they're dealing on the cellular level with repair and even regeneration and um, prolonging uh, life expectancies. I think you know now it's in the the late 70s and early 80s, depending on what country and which gender you are. Um, it'll probably get closer to a hundred, um, yeah. you know, in the next 30 or 40 years. But Our, then the question is, the question is, what is the world going to be like? And do you want to live that long in this world? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, you know, a different, uh, that's an ethical issue as well. You know, yeah. as the world, as they, as we deal with climate change and environmental catastrophes and loss of ecosystems, you know, what are we actually going to be living in? It gets very dystopic. Totally. Well, here's a related question to that. What will be the most sought after job by kids in the year 2030? You know, right now it's, it's engineering and coding, but I think that mm -hmm. I, I also heard the statistic that the, the kids that are entering college now 80% of the jobs they're going to have haven't been invented yet. Right. So I think, you know, it's changing so fast and it's going to continue to change, but I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be technologically based. Um, and yet there'll have to be a, a service factor as well, because, you know, as the population ages, we're going to need more people involved in, in that industry of taking care of the pop, you know, the aging population. Totally. All right. Last rapid fire question. Okay. What one piece of advice would you give to every kid in America right now if they all heard you right now? Um, have as much fun as you can for as long as you can. Love there that. is no pressing need to become an adult. There is no pressing need to start planning your future. It's going to come fast enough. It's going to come. It's going to smack you in the head before you know it. 
So while you're a kid, be a kid, stay a kid. Um, that doesn't mean don't work in school. That doesn't mean don't listen to your parents. That doesn't mean don't follow rules, but just relax. Don't be pressured. Um, enjoy yourself as long as you can, because, you know, kiddom is finite and mm. you're not going to be a kid forever. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's get into the future scenarios now. In your mind, what is the worst case scenario for the future of being a kid? Worst case scenario. I think the worst case scenario in the future of being a kid is to have so much pressure on you to perform and to be mature and to have responsibility at such an early age that you you lose that essence of what it is to be a kid that you're you know because you have access to so much technology that it just turns you so inward that you you lose the ability to enjoy what's your surroundings you know that are um that are calling out to you but you can't hear them because you're so focused on your devices or your screens or you know whatever you're doing on a keyboard that I think the the worst case scenario is kids are going to become even more divorced from their surroundings. Right. Yeah, that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes is from Gandhi. And he says, there's more to life than simply making it go faster. Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's the treadmill that we're all on. Mm -hmm. And slowing it down is like the challenge and the goal at the same time. Yeah, awesome. Let's talk about the best case scenario. What is the best case scenario for the future of being a kid? Best case scenario. The best case scenario since technology is ever present will be that somehow there's a, um, an integration of, of technology and environment that, you know, kids will, will be able to look at the screen and look through the screen and past the screen into, you know, the wonderful world that's out there, that they'll become engaged, that they'll become active, that they will, will help change the world for the better. Because all our hope is now in, in the youth of today. My generation destroyed the world. We've taken all the money. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there are limited prospects for the generations further down the ladder. But I think that, you know, kids now take their purity, their innocence, their honesty, and they they use it for good. They use the technology to expand the world, to make the world better, to to, you know, help everybody going forward. If kids could do that, I think that really is the best case scenario. And they're our best hope for doing it. Yeah. And on a policy level, is there anything we could do or that you hope would happen that would make that better for kids? Like, for instance, Universal basic income has been suggested, uh, you know, Canada has a child credit. So, you know, maybe Medicare could help, maybe some sort of, you know, universal education. Um, are there any policies that you think would really be important for us to pass to make being a kid better in the future? I think all of those things, all those pro progressive policies are, are, are truly important because they free up parents to free up their kids. And um, anything that we can do to lighten the load of the family, um, you know, there's a, a whole political school of thought that we rob people of their incentive by, you know, offering them societal benefits. 
I don't I don't subscribe to that. I think that, you know, we give people greater opportunities as we free them up from their most, you know, material concerns of of worrying about where they're living or if they're going to eat. So the the more of those, you know, issues that we can take away from from parents and families, the better off it all is it it, 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 it washes down over the kids and yeah. they have a better chance of success if their parents aren't stressed. Right. It's, it's funny because it sounds fairly extreme to say, you know, universal income, Medicare, but that's already what we offer for senior citizens, which is a great safety net for senior citizens. But we don't extend that same thing to kids, which really when you're thinking about the future of America, it's like the opportunities and the foundation that kids have growing up is such a big determining factor in what the future of America is going to be like that. And I don't think it has to be an either or, but it, it does seem like, to your point, if we help out the kids, then that sort of washes over the whole family unit and, and all of society. Yeah, I think like universal health care, got to have it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> universal child care, got to have it. Um, you know, paid for preschool education, got to have it. There have been so many studies done that show how it benefits. Mm-hmm. And it's really an investment. It's not like a waste of money. It's like you're investing in the future of our society. You know, it's the people that are, are against this stuff, I think, are uh, short term thinkers. Mm-hmm. And they're not looking at it really, as you said, the, the benefits. And, you know, they're saying, yeah, it's costing this now. But the truth is, in in years down the road, how much better off everybody is. Um, in every, in, in every, on every level, you know, in right. every facet. Maybe if kids um, could vote, they'd get more political <laughs> capital. Well, hopefully, you know, if kids could vote, hopefully they would vote. You know, <laughs> the, the, you know, the jury's still out on whether the 18 to 30 year olds are going to turn out to vote. Yeah, and those, true. That, that block could control the election. If mm-hmm. all the 18 to 30 year olds went out and voted, it could happen. It could change. It's the unfortunate, the you know, the it's the 60 year olds and over that are doing all the voting. And right now they're entrenched in everything that, you know, the system, that the system, keeping the system the same. But if the 18 year olds and their cohort were voting could change it in an instant. Totally. Awesome. Well, let's bring it home for the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. I think that when we finally come out of the pandemic and we will come out of the pandemic, um, I think then we're going to be confronted by a range of other issues quickly on its heels. I think climate change is going to come fast on its heels and we're going to have to deal with income inequality and uh, a lot of these other things. So I think that, um, you know, we're going to be putting out fires you know, figuratively and literally for for the next 10 years, you know, we're going to still be we're going to be doing a lot of triage and um, at the same time trying to tackle the larger issues. So it's going to be difficult. And there's a lot of opposition to even any change. Um, Just look at where our country's at right now. Um, But so I I think kids are going to continue to play video games and they're continue to play sports. And you hope that parents are going to come out of the pandemic with a more enlightened attitude of of realizing what we've lost in this, you know, six months or year or year and a half 
um, since it started and maybe be a bit more enlightened in how they deal with their their children. Um, but I think that technology, you know, we're going to, um, you know, they'll the self-driving cars as an example, you know, we're going to get more comfortable with those. And within the next 10 years, they'll, they'll be all over the, the freeways and everywhere else. And I think the concomitant um, technological advances will start to become more and more comfortable with as they, you know, as, as they make our lives a little, you know, at first more chaotic, but ultimately easier. And we're all about making life easier. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And with freeing up all this time and rethinking your priorities, focusing on what's most important to you and what makes life worth living has never been more important. That's why I love your message about kids being a kid and, and how important that is. So do you have any final thoughts for, for listeners, for readers? Where can people find you? Uh, you could find me at uh, www.whatsizeballs.com where my book, What Size Balls Do I Need, is also offered. Um, you could find me at my email, coachstevela at gmail.com. And I think a, a greater message is appreciate what we have. You know, there, the pandemic is awful, but there, there is a, a blessing in this curse. And that is the greater time with family, the greater appreciation of family, of what we have, what, who we are. And let's see if we can, you know, take that appreciation outside when, you know, when it's finished, when there's a vaccine, when there's, you know, herd immunity, when we're, we're back to what, you know, normal might be. See if we can be a little better than we were going into it. And I think, you know, if that's the case, then it will not have been a total loss. Love that. That's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Steve. And highly recommend your book to all of our listeners. The past, the present, and the future. enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at hencethefuture. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. 
Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.